All right. Thank you, Allie. I have a quick remi- reminder for some of you, and actually a, an update. Um, we've been in a, uh, s- not a series, but a kind of a year-long mission where we've been calling it Real World Endeavors, and we have six projects that we've got slotted throughout the whole of 2016, and uh, the first section of that is all about uh, Celebrate Recovery and, and pouring into that, and we wanted to keep you updated, and, and as a church, you've stepped into that massively. Um, we specifically talked about The Landing, which is a, a ministry uh, not to adults, but to children um, of adults uh, and kids who are struggling with hurts, habits, and hang-ups, or kids of those who are, and really ministering to them. But one of the things that we really need is we need adult men volunteers for that ministry. It's on Thursday nights. It's every single week. We don't want you to jump in and sign up and say that you're interested in it um, and it not be a good fit. So we'd love for you to reach out uh, uh, to the director of that. And Allie, uh, you've got the email for her on It's on Facebook. Okay. So I, I go out to the Manuka Bible Church Facebook page. You'll see that there. Maybe we could even pin that there and we'll, so that you can uh, take a look at that and maybe reach out to her. See if Thursday nights, if you're an adult male, that that could be something that you could jump into. That would be fantastic. All right? Okay. And, we, and that's an every Thursday commitment, so it's a big deal, but it's, it's an amazing ministry. Well, we're uh, studying Palm Sunday and uh, just a triumphal entry. And if you grew up in church land or if you have any reflection on Scripture, if you have, well, let's put it this way, if you have a little bit of uh, interaction with Scripture, or maybe your parents dragged you to church once or twice as a kid, and you got to Palm Sunday, you understood this is the flannel graph Jesus triumphal entry where everyone's celebrating, and what are they screaming out? What, they, what word are they using? Wow, okay, you guys all went to church. Okay, so Hosanna, and, and what does Hosanna mean? Hosanna. <laughs> That's what it means. Hosanna means save me, or, or please save me, or save me now. It's, it's got that kind of emphasis to it. It's, it's, a, it's a political word as well as a religious word. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's um, a word that, that is used in that passage. So if, you've got, if you have a little bit of interaction with Scripture, you know it as Palm Sunday being the triumphal entry. If you've got a little bit more interaction with Scripture, or at least maybe with going to church on Palm Sunday, you'll see that a lot of times what's focused on is, okay, you've got this amazing shout of Hosanna, Lord save us, this, this reality of what, what people are investing in, who Jesus is, like, you're the one, you're the one, and, and being totally proclaiming his glory and, and his kingship and who he is. And then a week later, what happens? You have people shouting, crucify him. And so the, the the trajectory of Jesus' popular opinion goes from wah, wah, in one week. And you, you see the, the massive contrast between people's affections. And a lot of times pastors like to utilize that as an, an opportunity to say, well, isn't that just like us? You know, we're worshiping God one day or one year or whatever, and then we're, we fall off the grid. I think that Jesus is doing something um, a little bit more significant even than, than that in this passage. And he's, he's surfacing something. What we're seeing in this passage is Jesus disrupting and dismantling a mindset that was popular um, in the first century, and he's completely unpinning it from its hinges and, and showing something completely different. And I believe it's something pertinent to us today. So if you've got your Bibles, please open on up to Mark chapter 11. Um, this is one of the Gospels that uh, touches on the triumphal entry. And we're actually, we'll kind of be looking just a little bit at Luke or, or referencing Luke because Luke includes some things that Mark doesn't. 
So if you've got your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles on your phone, let's go ahead and go there. And Mark 11, chapter 1 and following, it says this. And just as a bit of context, Jesus and his disciples have, are going to Jerusalem for Passover. Okay? Now, if you're coming from the Galilean area, um, and if you were on the last Israel trip, you know that in, what people did was they would come down from the north, they would get into Jericho, and then they would go up to those, those canyon areas up to get to the high point of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, was up there. And so it was, it was wherever you are in Israel, they always would say you're going up to Jerusalem. And so everyone's going up to Jerusalem and heading on up there. And they kind of go over the Mount of Olives at Bethany. And then they go right down into and see Jerusalem right there. Chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany. Those are two important words. So just hold on to them in your head. As they approached Jerusalem and it came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street and tied it at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, uh, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, Jesus had told them to, and the people let him go. Verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Okay, let's just pause there for a second. What is Jesus riding? A colt. And, some, and other passages talk about it being a donkey. Whatever it is, it's, it's like, it's not a steed. It's not this like massive, huge Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Gandalf on this white, oh, you know, steed coming in. It is a, it's a, it's a horse built for a hobbit, okay? That's, it's small. Okay, my brother-in-law, Corey, and my sister, Sarah, are here, and my mom is here. Um, and, and Corey, one of the things that uh, Corey and Sarah do is they help out with the family over in Fort Wayne at the Fort Wayne Zoo. And what do you do? Horse rides. Hor- but not horse rides. Pony rides. All right. So this is like the thing where like parents put their little tiny kids on these things and all the parents like me want to just jump on these little tiny, I guess there are some horses there too, but it's a majority of pony rides. Jesus is not riding this big, impressive steed. He's he's riding a smaller animal. Why? Well, first off, it was prophetic. I mean, this was prophesied that this happened, but I think this is, it speaks to a deeper reality of this is just like Jesus. I mean, he's God, but, but through the incarnation, we see that, that he becomes man, that he's the king of kings, and yet he's, he's riding on this smaller animal, and, and, and the thing where people are proclaiming who he is, and actually, that's, that's exactly what happens next. Verse 8, many people spread their, clo- spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which again means what? Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the ki- coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, these people are doing something really important here. They're quoting Psalm 18, 118. And Psalm 118 is the end of a set um, of these psalms called the Hallel Psalms. And they were like Passover psalms. You would, you would talk about this and you would proclaim this. And this was a, a, a prophetic statement within these psalms talking about... One day there's going to be this king. One day there is going to be this one who will save us. And these people are not just singing the song because, hey, this is what we do at Passover. They're singing the song to Jesus. 
They're proclaiming the reality of who Jesus is, the waving of palm branches. This was not just because they were hot or this was what people do in flannel graphs when they've got palm branches. How many of you came in here today? Actually, you grew up in, in a church system or a, a tradition where, I mean, on Palm Sunday, I mean, they took it literally. They had palm branches and you were really disappointed. You're like, what is wrong with... Where is the palm branch budget? It's not just a goofy first century thing. They did it as a political statement. They were declaring kingship. And what are they saying to him? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom out of our father David. You are the prophetic answer that God said that there's going to be a king through the line of David. It's you. It's you. Massively political statement. Continues on, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into this temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Okay, so just, just as a place of ge- geography. If you've got, if, um, let's just say that this right here is Jerusalem. Okay, it's the temple and the city right here. On, let's see, how are you looking at this? Okay, if this is east over here, would this be to you east? Yeah, east, right? East. Over here, this is the Mount of Olives. This is Bethany and Bethpage right up here. And the Mount of Olives comes and it drops down into this Kidron Valley right here. And then it kind of just comes up and here is like the temple and the, 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 villa, the, the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus and his disciples come from Jericho up to Bethany, Bethpage, and go down into, they come up here, they look around the temple. Nobody's around here. It's late. Let's go back up to Bethany. Whoop, go right back up. And you could walk that. It's not like a drive. It's, it's all within um, visible distance here. Verse 12, the next day they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. You know, this is is one of the most puzzling, weird parts of this whole passage, and Mark does very little to explain it. The next day they were leaving Bethany, verse 12, Jesus was hungry. Okay, so Jesus is hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Okay, so what we have here is the Son of God who was key in creation, right? He's created photosynthesis. As God, he understands the seasonal change that sometimes there are seasons of ripe and sometimes there are seasons of non-ripe fruit and fruit plants, right? So Jesus comes upon something and he's going to get fruit. Is there fruit there? No. Because it's not the season for fruit. And then this is what happens. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So it was loud enough for people to pick up on it. And people are like, Okay, let's write this down. This is. Now, before we just gloss over and say, Well, Jesus did it, so let's not ask any questions about it. I mean, because I don't know why he did it, but let's just let's not invest it. If you went up to an apple orchard here in Illinois in February, just to, just to see what it would look like to see a bunch of trees out of season, like you do. And you go up there, and you see somebody chewing out a tree, yelling at the tree, where are my apples? Where are my apples? It's February. Where are my apples? You lock the door, and you back away slowly. <laughs> and yet Jesus is yelling at this fig tree for not having fruit in a time when it shouldn't have any fruit. Why? 
Mark doesn't explain it. He moves right on. Like, well, let's keep going. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the, and the benches of those selling doves. Verse 16. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be a call of prayer for whom? All nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. You've turned, you've turned these temple courts a place that's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, a place where people can come and pray to God, seek connection to God. That's what it's intended for, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. This isn't just a place where people are cheating people. See, a den of robbers, robbers don't rob their own dens. They take their loot back to their dens. That's where they're comfortable. That's where they're safe. Jesus is saying, you've taken this place that was supposed to be a prayer, prayer location for all nations, and you've turned it into a place where people are absolutely comfortable with the wrong stuff in their heart, the cheating that's going on in their heart, and they're totally at peace in this place that was supposed to be for prayer for everybody. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. I like how the NET translate that, looking for a way to assassinate him. Who do you assassinate? People who are political or religious threats, and Jesus was both. Why? For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered it and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And goes on from there. Okay, so just a couple things here. Um, What Mark doesn't record, Luke does. On that second day, you know, they come back, and they come from uh, Bethpage, which means unripened fruit. They get into Bethany, which means ripened fruit. And they're going down. They go into Jerusalem. No one's around there. It's late. So they go back up to the place of ripened fruit. As they're leaving the place of ripened fruit, Bethany, they come and they get, to, before they get to the fig tree, they, they stop. And what Luke records is Jesus stopping on this little tiny narrow road. And Jesus crying at what he sees. Let me show you what he saw. Um, we, as a group, this, um, last month we were there. This is uh, the location commemorating the, lo- the spot along that very narrow road. It had to be along this narrow road where Jesus comes over the hill of Mount, Mount of Olives. And what he sees is Jerusalem. He sees the city. Now right there, that's the Dome of the Rock. It's an um, Islamic uh, shrine. And that, that's an incredibly impressive building, massive building, 50 feet tall. And when you drive in and you first see Jerusalem, it takes your breath away. Today, it just, it just, it's, it, it's mind-boggling. The architecture, the, the fact that this is the, this location, it, it's amazing. But in the first century, people would have not just been like, because the Dome of the Rock is 50 feet. Herod's temple was 150 feet. And so they're coming over this, and this might have been something of what it would have looked like. That's what they see. That is, they're looking at this, and people, even people far from God or pagan or, or whatever, would say, look, I don't even know if I believe in this guy. I don't know if I believe in this, this one true God they talk about, because where I'm coming from, it's completely different. But look at this. Look at how impressive that thing is. Look at how massive that is. Clearly, this has got to be serious. These people take their religion seriously. It's got to be something that's massively important, which brings us back, of course, to what happens next, the whole fig trees. And the question, what is up with the cursing of the fig tree? What does Jesus say to this fig tree? 
He sees it in leaf, and there's no fruit. Well, come on, Jesus. It's, not a, it's, it's springtime. This thing's not going to have fruit till like later on in the summer, right? Why would you be so surprised? Because fig trees have something that are on the fig tree when it's just in, right when it starts to blossom those leaves. Before it has the fruit, it has, when those leaves indicate that they have nodules. And in the Mediterranean area, people go to fig trees before the fruitful season, and there's plenty of nodules that are, are wonderful to snack on, like little tiny like, things like that. It's like a trail mix um, of nature, a nature valley trail mix. And that, that's, it's like that, they're just eating that, right? Jesus goes to this. It's not season yet for the full-on fruit, but it, has, it still has fruit to it, even out of season. And clearly, the massive leaves would indicate that. If you went up to a fig tree in the springtime, and it has leaves, and it has no nodules, that's an indication that something is terribly wrong with this plant. This plant is diseased. There's some decaying aspect to this plant, keeping it from being fruitful, the thing that it was designed by God to to be able to do. And Jesus curses it and says, there's nothing, nothing that's going to come out of you. And right in that same time, he sees Jerusalem and he cries. And he says to Jerusalem, you see in Luke, if only you knew what could bring you peace. Jerusalem, your name, your main means God's peace, the city of peace, city of God's peace. And you look so fruitful, but you have no fruit at all. You look so amazingly established, but there's nothing there. And on top of that, you were not ready for the only one who could bring it to you. I believe, and if you've got your notes, we'll be following through this, that Jesus disrupts the religious and political establishment to reveal the countercultural invitation of the Heavenly Father. Jesus is constantly teaching us what God, the Heavenly Father, is, is, is expecting of us. He's passing that on. And in this whole series of approaching Jerusalem and what he does in the temple, I believe it's reestablishing for people, I want you to see the new thing that I'm doing. And the first aspect of that is revealing to us the way the Heavenly Father looks at people. Luke records something else that the other Gospels don't, which is what happens on the approach to Jerusalem. Because again, if you're coming from the north, you come through Jericho, and then you go up through those valleys. And Jericho is this, this town, and in Jericho, he comes across a guy. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Who is he? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is this guy, and, and I mean, he's so adorable in all of our children's coloring books, but he's not a good guy. He's messed up. Okay, because he's an absolute traitor to his people. And Jesus should have called him out. And he didn't. See, what, if you kind of think about it this way, it's, it's as if like ISIS has come in and has completely um, occupied the United States. They're a terrorist group, but they've got enough power and they, they raised enough power to be able to occupy us. And, and now when we pay taxes, we're paying taxes to ISIS to fund their terrorist campaigns. And that sickens us. Number one, we're sickened because we're occupied. But secondly, we're funding horrible, horrible things. And on top of it, some of our neighbors who were out of work said, well, I need work someplace. I'm going to go ahead and just work for these guys, collecting the taxes from you. So your neighbors go to ISIS, get a job, and their job is to go to you and collect money from you to give it to them to fund their terrorist campaigns. And you look at your neighbor and you're like, How can I? I can't even look at you like a neighbor. How can, you're not even American. How could you, you're not even a per, how could you even look at it as a decent human being after what you've done? And in their world, it's even worse because not only is it nationalistic, but it's religious. How could I even look at you as a brother and, and, and as a Jew? How could you be one of God's chosen people after what you've done? After you siding up with those people? How could you do that? 
And so this wee little man was, wee, was hated a lot more than we. It was a lot. And so he comes through and he's engaging with Jesus' message. And what does he do? How does he get to see Jesus? That's right. For the Lord he wanted to see. And so on that day, Jesus is walking through and Zacchaeus goes up and he climbs up into the sycamore tree. And, and the, the interesting thing is he's trying to get engaged Jesus. He's trying to understand it. And Jesus, what Jesus doesn't do, which is what we would have done, is say, you want to know an example of someone who's not doing this? You want to know, my, I'm talking about my kingdom and my kingdom of peace. And my kingdom, which is radically different than the kingdom of this world. It's radically different than the oppressive empire of the Romans. You want to know who's not living like that? That guy. The guy up in the tree. We all know who you are, Zacchaeus. We all have heard the stories. Everyone in this town has been robbed and cheated by you. And he doesn't do that. He tells them to come down. Come here. You can see me a lot easier if you get closer. Come here, Zacchaeus. Come here. Today, I'm going to share a meal with you, which was more than us just sharing a meal with someone. In the first century, that's like we have a kinship. I'm going to treat you like a brother when no one else would. Jesus starts to reflect on the fact that the Heavenly Father looks radically different at us than we look at each other. And he does this on the approach to Jerusalem. They're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, and this is happening on the approach. And when they get into Jerusalem, again, this is one of the most busy times of the entire... This is, this is the Super Bowl of religious festivals, Passover. And everybody's getting into the temple because this is when we make the annual sacrifice. And if you look at the temple courts, you, you've got this, this place where the Holy of Holies is. That is where they, they put the whole... They would go all in on the fact, if you want to know where God was, yes, is God omnipresent? Absolutely. But if you want to know where God's presence especially dwells, we believe that it especially dwells in the Holy of Holies. That's where, 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 where we know that he could be addressed. We know that he can be, he can be communicated to. Sacrifices could take place in, in this area. So the court of the Gentiles is right there, and the Holy of Holies is right there, which doesn't look all that bad until you realize that there's a barricade. The barricade is the court of the priests. See, the court of the priests, they wouldn't even go into the Holy of Holies except for one day of year. And there was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But outside of that, they could, they could be in that area closest to the Holy of Holies. Which, again, it doesn't look that bad. Because, look, you're right next door to the court of the priests, so it's really not that big of a deal. Until you realize there's another barricade. And that barricade is the court of the men, or Jewish men. These had to be Jewish men who were in that area, which was surrounded by another barricade, the court of the women. The area that Jesus is flipping over tables is in the court of the Gentiles. They had set up the marketplace where you're selling all the animals for sacrifice in that area. And at Passover time, Josephus, a historian, said that over 255,000 lambs were being sold in that area. Can you imagine the sound? And people are bartering back and forth. Can you imagine the, 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 just the absolute chaos? And what is this place supposed to be intended for? A place of prayer for all nations. The court of ethne, the court of all nations was that court of the Gentiles. And it was chaos. It was chaos. That's where they're supposed to meet with God. So Jesus starts to flip over the tables. And more than just flipping over the tables, just because of the fact that there was merchandising taking place in the temple courts, he was absolutely frustrated with the fact that you have turned this place where it was a connection point for all kinds of people. Every nation could meet here. Every, every kind of people, Gentiles could come and worship God here, could, could pray to God here. And you've taken this place and you've turned it into a place where you've absolutely pushed them out. 
To the point where they can't. You've got this all separated into things where the only people that can actually connect with me are Jewish men and Jewish women. It's all broken down between Jews and Gentiles and, and men and women. And, and, the, and you've got this system that's set up that is keeping these guys out from the, because of the merchandising. And Jesus is proclaiming that something deeper is happening here. The prophets talked about how the peace of God, the peace of God would spread over not just in Jerusalem, but it would spread over the entire world like the water of the oceans. That it would spread to all And if you're a Gentile here, if you're not a Jew, if you don't have Jewish backdrop, that means you. Jesus was proclaiming, and the prophets were proclaiming, the fact that this good news, this reality, was going to extend even to you. And Paul talked about it, because what Jesus accomplished, he says this, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. See, the children of Abraham are Jews. Paul says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's Genesis 12. There's this promise. This isn't just a Jesus thing. This isn't just like first century thing. This is what what, what God was communicating from the very beginning. In Genesis 12, he says, you are going to be a blessing to all nations. And so Paul clarifies that. The gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. Meaning you've you've connected with the death of Christ. You've connected with the resurrection of Christ. There is now, check this out, and this is again speaking right into that temple system. There is now neither, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is not just for the Jews. This amazing, amazing good news is spread out to all people. And Jesus is going into a system that is already split up. And he's saying something new is happening here. Tim Keller put it this way. The people may have been startled by Jesus' display of controlled, authoritative, righteous anger in overturning the tables in the temple. What absolutely shocked them is that he was overturning the sacrificial system of the temple and opening the way into the presence of God for everyone. Amen? That's awesome. That's huge. But it's absolutely, you don't do that. And if there's any place you don't do that, you don't do it in the temple courts. Today, if you go over to Jerusalem and you tried a stunt like that, you would be arrested or killed on the spot. I know this. Because I went there with Jason Domingo. (laughs) And Jason Domingo had the great idea to go to the Western Wall with a pocket knife on his belt. What are you doing? We got chewed up by Israeli police, like, for, like, like, I don't know how long it was, but it was, it was, I wasn't getting shot, Jason was, so I just took pictures of it. But it was, it was something that (laughs) was really one of those things where it it was, it freaked you out. If you went up, and we weren't even to the Western Wall yet, if you actually got to the Western Wall, and you did something like that, You'd be arrested. And yet Jesus is doing, taking that above and beyond. Which is why, after that stunt, they made this plot to assassinate him. See, Jesus was trying to communicate something. You need to be looking at people the way the Heavenly Father does. Secondly, not only that, but the way the Heavenly Father looks at holiness is going to be radically changed by what I'm about to do. 
Holiness is not something that we just think of as the holy of holies in the temple. Holiness was something we see in the beginning in Genesis. In Genesis, we have the peace of God in the garden, the shalom of God exhibiting there. God's presence and us were there in the garden. We had that, that connection, that absolute perfect relationship between us and God, us and everything around us, and us and each other. God's presence and us were united there until man's rebellion from God. And when man sinned, all of a sudden we have in Genesis 3.24 describing this angel that, that barricades humanity outside of the peace of God in the garden. And it says that he has a fiery sword. I mean, Genesis 3.24 even talks about how he's waving it back and forth. I don't even know what the sound effect would be for that, but it'd be something like, whom, whom, whom. but whatever it is, he's keeping them out, Right? God's presence and us are absolutely split because of our sin. But God loves his people. And he establishes a way for people to understand that, listen, in spite of your sin, there is a way back. In spite of your sin, there's a way to know that peace is possible. But it comes at a price. It comes at a sacrifice. And if it's not going to be you and your death, it's going to be the death of someone else. If it's not going to be your blood, it's going to be the blood of someone else. And so a sacrificial system is set up, and it's in the tabernacle. And then when they finally get the promised land, when they actually get Jerusalem, and they, they build a, a city, what they put at the heart of that city is that temple. And in the heart of the temple is the Holy of Holies. And again, Jerusalem, the city of peace, is this amazing place. But all of a sudden, what ends up happening with God's people is they do whatever we do whenever we make something go from a religion to something that's ritualistic and empty. We start deifying the, the practice and the process and forget about the person. They start to turn the temple into a shrine. It's almost like this place um, where you, if you get close enough to that, you can know that, hey, my sin's taken care of, and then you can just walk away. But it, it's something that's significant, like it's this, it's this place that is the significant place. Not realizing that God's presence is everywhere, but that this is the most important place that they could possibly be. This location right there is something that you can still see today. Um, it's a bit of the, the little bit of the original uh, Herod's uh, temple, the second temple that would have been there with Jesus that you can still see to this day. And Carla took a picture of it. It's right here, uh, right there at the base. You see some of the original stones from Herod, uh, Herod's temple. It's not the temple. It's, it's, it's the wall of the temple. But you have people still, even though it's just the wall, people going there all day praying. This is actually at nighttime when we were over there. And you have people that are super religious and super dedicated to go there, and they want to go there to be close to the proximity and the presence of God. I just got to get close. This is as close as I'm ever going to get to the Holy of Holies. I just need to be here. If, they're, if you're actually able to get up onto the Temple Mount where the um, Muslim uh, shrine is, you're not allowed to pray up there. So Jews, what they do is they go here and they pray, and they touch the stones they believe that, that getting this close to the presence of God or where the Holy of the Holies would have been, that maybe God can hear their prayers a little bit more amplified. And you know that because they, they and tourists write down prayers on uh, little pieces of paper and stick them in the cracks of the stones, again, thinking that maybe God is hearing them a little bit more strong because of this location. It's really sad. And it's really sad because you have these people who religiously do this day after day after day, trying to get proximity to God, try to be close to the presence of God by being close to rocks that were close to the temple. 
See, Jesus talked about this problem we have with making holiness all about a building or a process. See, in, in Jerusalem in Jesus' day and, and today and before that, there's a valley on the east side, which is the Kidron Valley. That's the valley they went through to get to, to uh, the temple. Um, but on the opposite side, on the west side, you got the Hinnom Valley. In, in the Old Testament, it's called Ben-Hinnom uh, or Son of Hinnom. And this was a very, uh, in Jesus' time, this was a, a, a place where a lot of people believed it was a trash heap. And Jesus, when he was referring to hell, would refer to the Hinnom Valley, which we get the word hell from. We get from Gehenna, we get hell. That valley of hell was a place of just constant burning and maggots, and you saw just decomposition taking place. And so when Jesus wanted to, to really put um, a fine, a fine uh, description of what it was to have an eternity outside of his existence, outside of the peace of God, what he would describe as, well, I have a kingdom. And outside of the walls of my kingdom, there is a place of absolute emptiness and decomposition and breaking apart of the, of who you, who, of the image of God inside of you, and that's hell, this eternal reality apart from the kingdom of God. Now, historically, that valley of Hinnom, Ben Hinnom, or, or, or the, the valley that was very popular in the first century still, um, with Jews, uh, of their understanding of what it used to be used for. It was a place that was used for uh, two things primarily, idolatry and child sacrifice. And, this, and the sad thing is, is that this wasn't just like pagan people coming in and using this valley for child sacrifice or for idolatry. It was God's people. He saves them from all the gods of Egypt, and he takes them through the wilderness, gives them this new promised land. And when they get to the promised land and they've built a temple, they still are going out and reconnecting with these false gods in the valley of hell. Author Joshua Butler uh, describes this as um, the valley of Ben-Hinnom was the location where God's people had their one-night stands in their affair against their good husband of the Heavenly Father. What would happen is you have people that had a connection with the temple, but they were able to go on out there at any given point, maybe at nighttime, and go out there and, and celebrate their other faith that they were worshiping God with, their, their idolatrous faith. If you look in the Old Testament, you see in uh, 2 Chronicles 28, King Ahaz doing this. This is the king representing the chosen people of God, God's Hebrew people. And what is he? He's, he's going out and he's having child sacrifice. You have King Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33, 3 through 9. And then description of the people of Judah and Jeremiah doing the very same thing. This absolute comfortability with this one part connection with the Holy of Holies and another part connection where we can kind of go out and go back in. This dualistic lifestyle that, that, that is nothing that God's people were not created for. And when Jesus is describing the problem with his people, it's not that they have sin, it's that they have this pseudo connection with God and yet they continue to go out and experience hell and then they bring the hell right back into the city of God. And he says, in my kingdom, this does not work. My kingdom, this is not the way it is. See, my, my kingdom is a kingdom of peace. This is not peace. This is hell. And this will not happen. See, as he, we continue to realize what, what Jesus is trying to communicate and bat home here, we see that it's coming right back to the garden. The fact that, that there is this absolutely separation between us and God because our lack of holiness and that fiery sword still separates us from the holiness of God. And what we end up doing is trying to pursue other things to fit the bill. Keller put it this way. Turning from God has had dreadful consequences. Building our lives on other things, on power, on status, acclaim, family, race, nationality has caused conflicts, wars, violence, poverty, disease, and death. We've trampled one another. We've trampled on this earth. 
That means that it's not enough just to say, sorry, may I please get back into the presence of God? No. If you've been badly wronged, you know that saying sorry is not enough. Something else is required. Some kind of costly payment must be made to, make, to put things right. If somebody came and they burned down your house and they murdered your family, and you saw them the next week and they said, hey, I just want to apologize for that. Totally sorry. You would say, you have no idea what you've done. There must be justice for this. Sorry is not good enough. And between us and God, an even deeper chasm has been cast. And that, that fiery sword that we couldn't possibly remove, Jesus took, and he took it upon himself on the cross. If you want to see a picture of God's presence and us being reunited, it's in the person of Jesus. If you want to see the place where that took place, it's the cross. Because you have the holiness of God meeting the sin of us and Jesus absorbing that and taking that upon himself. So when Jesus is looking at a sacrificial system which has become so ritualistic and so rote that people's faith are on the building and on the process, Jesus says, no, this is not, what is going to happen is the thing that all this symbolically pointed towards, I'm actually going to do on the cross. And so when he comes into that temple courts and, and disturbs the sacrificial system, the priests were getting a kickback from all those sales. You could have a lot of priests and you could have a lot of them employed because of all the kickbacks from those sales. If the sacrificial market was disturbed, the priesthood, as they knew it, would end. Which would mean they wouldn't have any priests and they would need a new priest. If, the, if there's no animal sacrifices, they would need a new sacrifice. And just a few days after this event, after this stunt that Jesus pulls... There was a better sacrifice. It was going to be him. No longer was it going to be an animal being sacrificed. He would be the final and ultimate sacrifice. Not only would they have a human priest, he would be the high priest according to Hebrews. We would have no go-between between man and God. Jesus made that connection where we're able to meet with him. And Jesus also talked about this crazy idea about the temple itself being destroyed. And actually in AD 70 it did happen. That was destroyed. But if the temple is destroyed, where do we meet with God? If the temple is destroyed, we're, we're going to need another dwelling place for God. And because of what Jesus did, that was accomplished. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? That means that you don't show up here to, to do church and to, to meet with God here. As if God is not existent in, in your workplace or your house or that when you get here, you try to polish things up because, you know what, we, just, we need to make sure that if God sees, God can see us better here. It's like everywhere else there's lead, um, you know, but Superman can see, you know, that we, here's something special. And so you got people doing things that are weird. Like if, if, you're, if, if Frank at the Library Cafe spills coffee on you here, you might just go, but if someone does that in your kitchen or at Starbucks, you might have a few different words that you wouldn't use here, Probably. Why? Well, because this is church. We don't cuss at church. We don't run in church. <laughs> but it's totally okay for do, doing all those types of things outside. And what we're doing when we practice that is we're forgetting, we are forgetting the fact that Jesus said, I am disrupting this system and you are the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's going with you. No matter where you are, if you are in the absolute, the most difficulty of disappointments in your workplace, he is with you. If you're in the absolute most difficult or high point of a relationship, or your family has totally devastated you, he is with you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus accomplished that on the cross. 
The temple system has been destroyed. He is the sacrifice, and you are the temple. Not only that, but Jesus points out the way the Heavenly Father looks at life itself. And if you talk to anyone in the first century that was religious, you would know that the life is God's law. The law was not something looked at as this bad thing or or something that you were trying to avoid or just this oppressive reality. It was an expression of God's law. And that stems back to the fact that they received God's law right after the exodus. Not only were they liberated from Egypt, but they were liberated to know God's expectations. And that was a gift to them. If you go to Israel or even New York, you're going to see really religious Jewish people that have these strands coming out of their their coats. And those strands, those little strings are, are connected to tassels which are connected to a prayer shawl. And whenever, whenever an Orthodox Jewish man would pray, he'd put that on and it becomes his prayer tent. It's like, like shawl. And then he would take the tassels and wrap them around his fingers and clutching onto them. They would describe it as being in the wings of God because they're so connected to the life, God's law. Each one of those tassels represents one of the 600 some odd laws in the Old Testament that God gave Moses. Not just the Ten Commandments, the whole thing. And they just look at that as life. Jesus is communicating. The law communicated God's expectation and God's standard. But we have broken it. That was their first exodus, but we need a new exodus. If we take a look at the old exodus, it's God's chosen people spared. And that's why Passover happens and is, and is celebrated. Because God, angel of death, passed over God's people. And not only that, they were liberated from Egypt. God's chosen people were spared. In the new exodus that Jesus accomplished, God's chosen people are spared by Jesus' death, ironically, at Passover. Seems like a coincidence, doesn't it? Weird how that happened. In the old exodus, you've got um, 49 days later, um, which is what Jews to this day celebrate as the the festival of weeks or Shavuot. This is the celebration of the fact that 49 days after they were able to have Passover, after they, they exited Egypt, they received God's law on Mount Sinai. Moses goes up there and it's like, it's like clouds and fire and God's presence. Is, 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 he's communicating with God and God actually gives him the law on stone tablets. And, and it's just this amazing, phenomenal moment. Which is weird because um, after Jesus, uh, 49 days after the Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples was when they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, at Shavuot. Why were they gathering? What were they celebrating? The festival of weeks, 49 days after the Passover. And that's where they received the law, but they received it differently because the New Testament instructs us that the Holy Spirit doesn't write the law on stone tablets. He actually writes God's law on our what? Hearts. Again, kind of weird, isn't it? But uh, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai He sees the idolatry that's taking place, worshiping the Baals, and 3,000 people are put to death. The disciples emerge from the room where they receive the Holy Spirit, and they see a crowd of people that are making fun of them, and they they proclaim to them the gospel of what Jesus has accomplished, and 3,000 people are saved. It's weird, the parallel. I I mean, the Bible is full of these really weird coincidences that have no connection to each other, right? What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus proclaiming? He's proclaiming that there is something new that's happening. If you're the temple, you need to have that instruction from God's word. You need to recognize that wherever you go, you have them. And Paul says, you show that you're the letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
Which again, we can kind of come back to all this and just say, you know, this is a wonderful thing Jesus did for those people who had a temple system, but isn't it awesome that we don't? We don't have a temple system that we need to be liberated from. But I think we do. See, just like these folks who put all their faith in these man-made structures, they put all their faith in what they could accomplish in if I bring this sacrifice, I can kind of touch home base of holiness and then I can go back and just do whatever I want to do. They have a man-made temple system that they're investing their means for their wholeness in this. What is, it, what is the temple that you have bowed down, that you sacrifice for? You give everything for this temple in your life. Is it your family? Is it your career? Your grades? A relationship? Boyfriend, girlfriend, a husband, wife, your kids? These are all good things. When our temple system is built and based on our wholeness being founded in those things, we set ourselves up for absolute, crushing, devastating disappointment because we spend our life trying to accomplish and get them, which is a waste of life. Or we have the absolute curse of accomplishing everything that we wished for and realizing it never was what it promised to be. Only Jesus could accomplish what he, what that. Our salvation and our wholeness, our holiness is built and based in him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I want to encourage you to take this Palm Sunday and next week at Easter, and I want to invite all you guys to make sure you come on out. Um, invite your friends, invite your family, bring them on out, but, but above and beyond letting this just be a, like a reset button for everyone, we're like, okay, I'm getting serious about my faith again. Let this be something where you allow God's word to challenge the reality of what you're putting your hope in, and ask the question, Do I need to allow my imagination to be expanded by what God is dreaming in me and for me rather than diminishing my life to being this thing where I'm just trying to accomplish this at work, this at school, this relationally, this goal, and missing the fact that I have far more life afforded to me by what Christ has accomplished me on a cross than I could ever have on my own. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, when you came up to that fig tree and you saw something that looked fruitful and it wasn't, you cursed it. And Lord, our our response is so different because we look at things that are big and seemingly healthy, families that seem to be intact, jobs that seem to be secure, dreams that seem to be noble, And we end up making our life centered around that. And we experience the disappointing fruitlessness of what we weren't designed for, created for. Right now we we repent of that, God. And we ask instead that you allow us to recognize your kingship, your lordship in our life. That we surrender all of our dreams, our families, our jobs, everything at the feet of you. We let you be the ruler of them that this year, this Easter year, this, this time when we come back and reconnect with the reality of what you accomplished on the cross in a special way, that we will find the power 
of the resurrection living in and through our bodies, God, that our, our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members will see something change in us and it'll be you. And God, when we start experiencing the peace that comes only from you, we will give you the thanks and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.